Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guests this week are El Monitor's Washington correspondents, Elizabeth Hagedorn, Adam Lucent, and Jared Suba. We'll be talking about what the Biden administration can expect and what we should expect from the Biden administration and the next Congress in dealing with the Middle East, including policies toward Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, human rights in the region, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and more. Now, let me kick off by saying that the Middle East prospects will depend in good part on its economic resilience coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic and low oil prices, which are projected to end up at about $41 per barrel this year and estimated to be $46 per barrel or so in 2021 next year. And that's according to the International Monetary Fund. Now, $46 is a drop of almost 25% from $61 per barrel in 2019. The indicators show that the Middle East North Africa economy is going to contract by about 5% this year, and that's half a point more than the IMF projects for the global economy, which is expected to decrease by 4.4%. Now, next year, 2021, just around the corner, the Middle East and North Africa is expected to grow by 3.2%, but that trails again the global economic projection of 5.2% economic growth. As the MENA region had only a 0.8% growth rate in 2019, we are looking at cumulatively three difficult years. Now, the reasons for the projected lower growth rates include deep structural problems that have gone from bad to worse as a result of the pandemic. And among them are the wars and their consequences in Syria, Libya, and Yemen. Civil unrest in Iraq, Lebanon, and Algeria, continued hardship for Gaza, and economic crises that predate the pandemic, including heavy indebtedness, high unemployment among young people, and legacies of corruption, inefficiencies, and poor governance throughout the region. Now, our guests today include El Monitor correspondents, Elizabeth Hagedorn, Jared Suba, and Adam Lucent. Elizabeth covers Mideast policymaking in Washington and breaking news. She previously reported on the region as a freelance journalist in Turkey and Iraq, where Middle East Eye, The National, The Guardian, and other publications. Jared is El Monitor's Pentagon correspondent. He previously worked for the Defense Post here in Washington and also reported on the region from Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. And he also was an editor at Aram Online in Cairo. And Adam covers breaking news in the Congress for El Monitor. He has worked in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Tunisia, and other countries across the Middle East. My conversation with Elizabeth Hagedorn, Jared Suba, and Adam Lucent begins now. Elizabeth, Jared, Adam, welcome to On the Middle East. Jared, let's start with you. 
You cover the Pentagon. The Trump administration has been cautious about the use of force in the region, and this has actually called for a scaling back of the U.S. commitment, drawing down troops in Syria, Iraq, and, and Afghanistan, for that matter. What do you expect from a Biden administration, which is inheriting this strategic landscape? And would the Biden administration continue this overall trend to step back from what some call endless wars? Hi, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, I think there are a few things going on there. I think, uh, you know, President Trump has been consistent since his campaign days that he wanted uh, U.S. military involvement in the Middle East and other parts of the world uh, to wrap up. Um, and it's, I think it's important to back up here and note that, you know, the, as, uh, you know, has been noted by a number of U.S. officials, um, particularly at the Pentagon, that the, you know, how warfare is being conducted is, is really changing. Um, the United States obviously adapted, adopted the uh, national defense, new national defense strategy in 2018. Uh, and this is really, you know, going to be the, the greatest U.S. strategic shift since the end of the Cold War, at least. Um, you know, this is obviously an effort to push back on Russia and China's expanding overseas influence. And I think it's not fully clear how the Biden administration is going to see the Middle East uh, fitting into that. So a lot of that's going to depend on the diplomatic end of how the Obama administration, excuse me, the Biden administration uh, deals with uh, Iran moving forward uh, and how they want to uh, negotiate some sort of return to the JCPOA or some sort of new uh, deal. And I think one of the biggest issues that is going to come up with that is how uh, they work with the, the issue of uh, Iran's ballistic missile program. Elizabeth, I wanted to get to you next. You know, Biden has referred to Saudi Arabia as a uh, pariah and has said that the kingdom will need to pay a price for its some of its actions. How do you think a, a Biden administration will handle the balance between human rights and security interests in the kingdom, but more broadly in the Middle East? It's always a challenge. And uh, for example, in the case of Saudi Arabia, it's still a key, key player in dealing with Iran and counterterrorism and Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy and ending the war in Yemen. What changes do you expect, uh, if any, in how one manages U.S. diplomacy towards Saudi Arabia? That's a good question. I think striking that balance will certainly be a challenge for this next administration. You know, generally speaking, we will see a greater focus on human rights and Biden's foreign policy. And with Saudi Arabia, we have some idea of what this will look like. Um, you know, during the campaign, Biden pledged to end U.S. military support for the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, a country the United Nations says is experiencing the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And you know, the U.S. is currently providing logistical support and intelligence to the Saudis, who's bombing campaign rights groups say is responsible for many civilian casualties. Um, you know, in addition to ending military support in Yemen, there will also be pressure on Biden to halt um, arms sales to the kingdom. And then um, with Jamal Khashoggi, Biden has said he will seek accountability for his murder. Um, President Trump resisted congressional efforts to punish the kingdom. And the activists are hopeful that, you know, at the very least, the administration will release the, the new administration will release the classified intelligence assessment into who was responsible. 
And then another area of concern for the Biden team, I think, are going to be the political prisoners held in Saudi Arabia, several of whom are U.S. citizens and, and jailed on trumped-up charges. So we'll likely see greater pressure on Riyadh there. Um, but as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia is a country with long-standing economic and military ties to the United States. Its de facto ruler is in his 30s and will likely be at the helm uh, for many more decades. So despite Biden's harsh rhetoric, he's not promising you know, a major disruption of this decades-old relationship. We will, however, see a shift in tone, one in which Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, for example, won't be invited for the, to the Oval Office for photo ops. What about more broadly, uh... Obviously, this is a region where human rights, uh, unfortunately, is not as well respected as it is in, in the West. It's often, if not always, been a sticking point in many of Washington's key relationships, not just with Saudi Arabia, but also with Egypt, for example. How do you see the Biden administration, based upon what we know about Senator and Vice President Joe Biden's engagement in the Middle East and what we're seeing from the campaign and key foreign policy leaders who will also be part of uh, setting that foreign policy agenda. Right. Well, critics of the Trump administration would say that the current White House does promote human rights, but only selectively going after um, egregious abusers like Iran, but giving more of a pass to countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt, whose leaders Trump has embraced. I think the hope among human rights groups and progressive activists is that this next administration will, at the very least, provide some clarity on what is not acceptable behavior from US partners and allies. Um, you know, to go back to the Khashoggi example, you saw a lot of mixed messages from the White House that critics would argue led uh, Mohammed bin Salman to believe he could act with impunity. Um, you know, and it's worth noting, Biden says he wants to host a, a summit of democracies during his first year in office to confront nations that are backsliding on human rights. And, you know, a number of Middle East countries would probably fall into that category. Adam, you cover the Congress. The Senate, as we have our conversation today, is still up for grabs pending the outcome of the runoff elections in Georgia on January 5th. What changes do you expect on Middle East policy, if any? And tell us about the new chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That's obviously a big job in terms of Middle East policy. Uh, that's Congressman Meeks. Yeah, thank you. So in the Senate, there's a few things to watch for next year. I think there could be some changes on arms sales to the UAE in particular. As our readers know, as Senators Bob Menendez, Chris Murphy, and Rand Paul, they introduced legislation to block the Trump administration's weapon sale to the UAE of F-35 fighter jets and drones and other weapons. The resolutions went to vote this month. They did not pass. However, what could happen in the Senate next year is Arm sales, they take years to deliver typically. And Senator Murphy, who co-introduced the re resolutions, he said almost immediately after the resolution to block the sale uh, failed, he said that he wants to continue reviewing these uh, weapon sales to the UAE when Biden comes into office. So it's possible the state of the sale could change. Another thing to watch for is resistance to 
uh, President-elect Biden's Iran policy from Senate Republicans. An Obama administration official I spoke to said, this is what Republicans are most likely to challenge Biden on, which is Iran and specifically any attempt he makes to return to the nuclear deal. The Senate, it's important to note, it's not totally split by party on the issue of Iran and the nuclear agreement, which is important considering how close the Senate will be in terms of Democrats versus Republicans. Uh, Menendez and also Chuck Schumer are Democrats who voted against the Iran nuclear agreement in 2015. Paul, kind of an anti-war Republican, he voted against it, but he's with the Democrats on some other issues. So I do think there will be pushback on any reproachment Biden tries to make with Iran from Republicans in the Senate, but how any votes will go, it's unclear because some people will vote against their party. And the final thing to watch for in the Senate is Biden's cabinet confirmations. Could be some resistance from Senate Republicans. Secretary of State is, of course, the position that's most related to the Middle East. And Biden's nominee, Tony Blinken, in my view, is safer for confirmation than Susan Rice would have been because of Benghazi in that controversy. The process is moving along with Blinken. He met with Senators Coons and Booker already, so I think he could get confirmed. But before I go to the House, just the important thing to point out is the Georgia runoff elections in January. A lot of what happens in the Senate and regarding the Middle East depends on what happens there. The polls are very tight. Uh, for people just to remember that if the Democrats pick up both seats, it'll be 48-48, but Vice President Harris would be the tiebreaker in that. So it would effectively give Democrats a very narrow control margin if they win both Georgia elections. But if the Republicans just win one of them, then it will be a slight Republican majority in the Senate. And then, as you said, there is a new chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Elliot Engel was defeated by Jamal Bowman. He was the longtime chair of that committee. So now Gregory Meeks, another Democratic representative from New York, will chair the committee in the next Congress. He has a fairly standard voting record uh, in terms of Democrats. He was for the Iran deal. He voted against the Iraq war. When he was selected as chair, he got support from a few different wings of the party that are notable. The pro-Israel Democratic Majority for Israel, which supports pro-Israel policies for Democrats, they endorsed him as chair, said they're excited to work with him. He also got support when he became chair from J Street, which is a pro-Israel, pro-peace organization that's kind of a liberal, more pro-peace counter to APAC, the main Israel lobby group. At a December hearing uh, with Joel Rayburn from the State Department, Congressman Meeks said that he was disappointed Trump turned Syria over to Russia. So these were one of his final uh, remarks at a hearing to close the year. So maybe you'll see more support for the Kurdish cause and for the SDF in Syria under his uh, chairmanship. Adam, you talk about Iran, and I want to bring Jared and Elizabeth back in on this. And uh, interesting point you, you just made that the Senate, not just Republicans, but perhaps some Democrats as well, uh, could challenge uh, various aspects of, of engagement with Iran. Uh, Jared, in terms of those you deal with, including on, on the military and more defense side, is there a feeling that Iran has gained in the region in terms of its, its influence in what they call malign activity over the last three or four years? Or has the Trump policy of maximum pressure 
serve to contain Iran by cutting off funding that could have gone to Hezbollah and other proxy groups. What are you picking up on the success of uh, maximum pressure and how the threat from Iran is read in the region? Well, I think that's a great question. I think there's been uh, some optimism uh, or optimistic assessments, I should say, um, on, I know you asked about the defense side, but particularly on the State Department side, we saw, uh, you know, we've seen in the past couple of weeks, uh, people, uh, James Ambassador James Jeffrey, former Syria envoy, and his successor, uh, Joel Rayburn, have said in the past couple of weeks publicly, uh, including in our interview with Ambassador Jeffrey, uh, you know, that the U.S. goal to, uh, the U.S. officially has a goal of, of pushing Iranian-backed forces out of Syria, preventing Iran from uh, establishing, a, you know, a power projection presence in Syria where they can, which they could use potentially to uh, threaten Israel with a new front uh, using, you know, rocket and ballistic missile uh, capabilities. The, the State Department people are come across publicly as very confident uh, that this is not going to be accomplished, and they credit U.S. military and intelligence support for Israel's air campaign uh, in Syria, uh, obviously, um, for uh, helping to tamp that down. Um, now, I think it's, uh, I think some of those are somewhat rosy interpretations. I mean, the official U.S. policy is that Iranian forces should leave Syria. Um, and we saw last week, um, you know, uh, former uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, Mick Mulroy, uh, publicly saying that uh, he sees no reason why the Iranians would at this time leave Syria. You see Iranian leadership uh, saying that they're not going to do it. Um, and you have Ambassador Jeffrey in the same event uh, with uh, Mulroy basically publicly admitting that yes, we have a maximalist position that they should leave, but what we really want is to prevent them from establishing, you know, military uh, forward presence in Syria. And that at least has been successful. So there's been mixed results. Uh, obviously, not all the U.S. goals have been achieved, um, but there is, uh, there is a good deal of uh, optimistic interpretation of the developments over the last three to four years, um, particularly with regards to uh, how the U.S. has addressed this issue in Syria. I think in Iraq, uh, there have been more questions. We've seen Secretary Pompeo obviously uh, sent that uh, threatening letter, uh, uh, warning that if the Iraqis, uh, Iraqi authorities do not rein in uh, the attacks of Iran-linked militias, that uh, uh, the U.S. may have to respond uh, unilaterally uh, and more forcefully. Um, so I think the results have been mixed, but I think uh, there there is quite a bit of um, uh, there is some satisfaction among some U.S. officials who have worked on this. Elizabeth, Joe Biden has said he wants to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal if Iran is in compliance and Iran wants the U.S. back in the deal, or that's what they seem to be saying at this point. The price of readmission is the U.S. lifting sanctions imposed since the Trump administration withdrew from the deal in May 2018. Now, some of those sanctions are on persons and entities affiliated with the IRGC, Hezbollah, and other Iran proxies. That Lifting those sanctions could be hard to justify. How do you see the Biden administration handling the issue of sanctions? Some have said they should indeed be used as leverage in the opening of engagement with Iran. And how do you see U.S. policy toward Iran 
playing out once the new administration takes office? You know, we've seen a new round of sanctions against Iranian targets just about every week since the election. I think it remains to be seen how they will impact future negotiations with Iran. Um, critics see the sanctions pile on as an effort to tie Biden's hands. On the flip side, you can also imagine how uh, an easing of sanctions could provide Biden with um, some bargaining power um, to bring Iran, which uh, is, has suffered under U.S. sanctions, to the negotiating table. Um, you, you know, we were talking about human rights. This is also um, an incoming administration that's pledged to elevate human rights and foreign policy with, um, you know, you have Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, who will be Biden's, um, who are Biden's choices for Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, recently weighing in on Iran's gruesome execution of a dissident journalist earlier this month. Um, so I think balancing sanctions relief with these human rights abuses carried out by Iran will be a major challenge. And it's also worth noting that Biden is on the clock here. Iran's moderate president um, has signaled a willingness to re-enter the agreement as a means of getting the sanctions relief, but he leaves office in June and there are hardliners waiting in the wings who are keen on accelerating the country's nuclear program. Great point there. Iran has its own domestic pressures and politics and Rouhani is, had considered the Iran nuclear deal a great achievement and it was uh, treated as such until Trump withdrew. So the pressure from the hardliners in Iran, who now control the parliament there, are to stay away from the deal. But you're right, and I, I like that phrase, uh, Biden's on the clock because Rouhani's days are numbered and that he cannot run for re-election in June. So there will be a new Iranian president. Let me say, as time is running down, we haven't talked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I'd like to get you all briefly to, to talk about that. This has been really an, an eventful year in many ways. We have the normalization agreements between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan is in the works as well. Um, what do we see for 2021 with, with the Biden administration coming in? Do we think there'll be an international peace conference? That's something that... Uh, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has, has proposed, could have some support at the UN. Um, we had Dawood Qatab here last week. He was not optimistic. Uh, one reason is the Biden administration is going to have a lot of other things to do as soon as it takes office, and it could take time uh, to get uh, a conference together. But how do you all see that conflict and that issue playing out in the coming months in the first year of the Biden administration. Adam, do you want to pick it up there? Yeah, sure. Thank you. In this year in Congress with regards to Israeli-Palestinian, I think in the House in particular, we will see more vocal opposition to any Israel support from the Biden administration. And this is because of shifts in the Democratic Party as we spoke, as we talked about Elliot Engel, longtime chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and an ardent Israel supporter, he lost his primary election to Jamal Bowman, who was vocally pro-Palestine. And the members of the so-called squad, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, also very critical of Israel, they won re-election easily. So I don't think this will translate into any U.S. policy changes. Uh, Biden, I think, will change rhetoric on Israel, but like his old boss, Barack Obama, I think he'll continue U.S. support for Israel. And I think he's 
will keep the embassy in Jerusalem. But more and more, the Democratic Party is shifting towards a more pro-Palestine position. Now, Chairman, the new Chairman Meeks of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, he's not really part of this. But eventually, I think this will be reflected in the leadership. And I think you'll start to see signs of that from how some House Democrats, not all, but some House Democrats in uh, 2021, especially as, you know, with the Black Lives Matter protests and more pro-Palestine views are coming to the forefront in the U.S. And you can see this in the Democratic platform as well, which in 2020, over the summer, which was clearly against Israeli annexation of the West Bank. So I don't think the leadership will change. I don't think U.S. policy will change so much on Israel, in, mostly in rhetoric. But I do think some House Democrats will start to be more vocal and more empowered in criticizing U.S. support for Israel. Thank you. Uh, Jared, help us understand what comes next now in terms of the normalization agreements, because these normalization agreements between Israel and, as we mentioned, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco uh, can also have um, security dimensions, especially in, in the Gulf, because Israel has had low, you know, quiet contacts prior to this year about the shared concern with Iran, about Iran's activities in the region. That's something Israel and the Gulf states have, have shared, the, their security interests with regard to Iran, who they consider the key threat in the region. Where do you see this going with regard to normalization? Do you think the Biden administration will continue to seek other countries to normalize with Israel, to build upon normalization, to, to move on the Israeli-Palestinian front? What do you think its options are and what do you think it will do, with, if anything, if unless you believe like Daoud does, that they may not just have the time, at least initially, when they come into office? That's a great question. I mean, I think the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration is, you know, this is a real splash of cold water for them, right? Because, you know, in the uh, Obama, you know, the Obama administration went out and a lot of Obama administration officials uh, left four years ago uh, with at a point in which U.S. and Israel relations were uh, not what they had been in the past. And I think this Trump administration initiative, uh, while it, the Biden administration, Biden officials will have some probably some serious questions about whether or not this is something they want to spearhead uh, right off the bat. Um, there is, there are serious, uh, uh, you know, defense cooperation, security cooperation, uh, you know, and there's a, an under layer of strategic cooperation that would really, uh, if it could be pulled off, uh, potentially help the United States uh, and its partners in the region deter Iran, or at least that's the thinking going on in the Trump administration. So the real question is going to be how the Biden administration is approaching Iran. Um, now, uh, Rouhani has said recently, you know, that they uh, that Iran is willing to return to the JCPOA as soon as the United States is willing. Um, However, of course, he also mentioned that Iran's ballistic missile program uh, is not going, he signaled that's probably not going to be uh, uh, negotiable as part of a return to the JCPOA or a new agreement. Um, how the Biden administration is going to deal with that is going to be uh, telling uh, about how perhaps about how it carries on or deals with, uh, you know, the legacy of the Abraham Accords. Um, the United States is 
very closely involved with Israel's missile defense with the Arrow 2 and Arrow 3 system, uh, you know, more recently with the Iron Dome and, of course, with the David Sling. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, top State Department official dealing with political military affairs has said recently, you know, that the Abraham Accords, uh, the United States would like to see, the Trump administration would like to see, you know, defense cooperation uh, with the Abraham Accords um, that would enable Israel and the UAE to take, uh, as is clear, you know, a more lead role uh, in deterring Iran's uh, proxy activities in the region. So it's, I think it's really going to come down to how the Biden administration uh, approaches the diplomatic side of the Iran issue. Elizabeth, one thing that's been interesting about the normalization agreements is that none of the four Arab states that have signed on have stepped back uh, from their commitment to the Arab peace initiative that was led by Saudi Arabia back in 2002, uh, that the end game is a two-state two state solution. And when the UAE, which went first uh, with normalization, its condition was that Israel not annex Jewish settlements in the West Bank, which was being talked about at the time, as, as Jared mentioned. So do you think there could be an Arab initiative to push for a conference or activity on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? Or do you see this as being on hold? And, and I would even ask more broadly, do you see the normalization agreements as a, a step forward in the long run for the Israeli-Palestinian issue being resolved? Those are some great questions. I think, um, you know, Biden has welcomed the initial agreements and indicated that his administration will seek to build on them. The challenge is how to do so while at the same time restoring the, the damage that was done between Washington's, with Washington's relationship with the Palestinians. I think on the one hand, the Palestinians are probably very encouraged by the new administration after four years of Trump. Um, you know, the current administration shut the Palestinian mission in Washington, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and slashed annual aid, aid to the um, refugee program. Um, Vice President-elect Harris has said the administration will reopen the mission in Washington and restore the aid cuts. Um, but at the same time, Biden isn't going to upend the Israel-US relationship and um, building on the Abraham Accords between Israel and Arab countries will not please the Palestinians. I think the question is, you know, will the regional powerhouse of Saudi Arabia, what will they do? Um, and recent reporting suggests that Saudi Arabia may be waiting to act until the new president takes office. And I think the fear among some progressives is, is that a deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel might come at the cost of Washington um, giving Riyadh a pass for some of its uh, behavior in the region. You know, we're just about to wrap up and running out of time, and we've been approaching the issues of the region from a very traditional foreign policy strategic way. You all cover all aspects of, of the Middle East. We haven't talked about COVID-19. We haven't talked about the economic issues. We haven't talked about many of the development issues, refugees, many things we that the region faces uh, that are going to shape the direction of events. 
Um, let me just quickly go around to all three of you. If there is one trend in the region that you're watching that you think we need to be watching and perhaps may not be paying enough attention to, um, let me know what, what's, what's on your agenda, what you're, what you're looking at in the coming year. And Jared, let's start with you. Well, that's a tricky one. I mean, I think, uh, I guess off the bat, I would say, uh, I would like to see, uh, how the, how the Iranian government is going to, what they're going to be willing to have on the table and not amid negotiations with the, with the Biden administration. Uh, I think that's going to determine a, a, a lot about U.S. Uh, military posture in the region um, in in the next four years. Uh, so that's something I would definitely be keeping a close eye on: internal Iranian politics and the signals that are being sent by uh, by uh, you know President Rouhani and other leaders. Adam, what, what what are you watching that perhaps we should be paying more attention to? One thing I think important to pay attention to is. If Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Israel, if they feel they don't have a total ally in the Biden administration, especially regarding Iran, it will be important to watch uh, what they do specifically regarding defense cooperation and the further normalization, not, not Israel and Saudi, but Israel and the UAE with the further normalization of their relations. Because if they feel that perhaps they can't count on the US to deter Iran, because Biden will take a very different approach than Trump's maximum pressure. Maybe they will even further integrate and support each other, moving from just economic and political relations to possibly stronger military relations if they feel threatened by Iran and if they feel the US doesn't see the threat the same way. Elizabeth? We've seen a progressive brand of foreign policy in the Democratic Party emerge in recent years. Um, the consensus that was built over ending support for the war in Yemen, being really emblematic of that. I'll be watching for the degree to which progressives are represented in Biden's foreign policy team in the weeks to come. His picks so far are pretty mainstream. Their views largely line up with his. I think once we see some of those deputy roles in the State Department and the White House filled out, we'll have a clear picture of Biden's foreign policy vision. Jared, Elizabeth, Adam, I wanna thank you for your time today, your thoughts and observations, and for your great reporting for El Monitor. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Andrew. I will be right back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor.
A great conversation today with Jared Suba, Elizabeth Hagedorn, and Adam Lucent, and you can read their world-class reporting every day at El Monitor. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. Wishing you all who are celebrating a Merry Christmas and the wonderful holiday season heading into the new year. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.